You are listening to the Post-Atomic Horror Podcast with Ron Algar-Watt and Matt Robotham. Episode 112, covering Power Play and Ethics with Gregory Dickens. Hello, friends. We are back, and we have a first-time guest with us. Mr. Gregory Dickens has agreed to join us, so uh, Gregory, welcome. Hello. We've we've been uh, we've been chatting back and forth on Twitter for quite some time. I know you've been listening to the mm-hmm. show, and you're always chiming in with some really good uh, insights. I'm like, why, why don't you come say that with your voice? And you're like, yes, yeah, all right, come be on the show. Oh, I'm delighted yeah. to do it. And though, and thus he was. And we're delighted to have you. So a lot of delight yes. to go around. Yeah, I'm delighted. You're delighted. We're all delighted. The rappers are delighted. That's the important <laughs> thing. Yes, those guys are always pretty delighted. Yeah, they get to be rappers. They can. Um. So we have an episode that, that I liked and hurt. <laughs> we have an episode that I liked and one that I didn't like, and apparently there's some dissension there, and mm-hmm. dissension always makes for good episodes, I think. Or So, yeah. Uh, Gregory, why don't you tell me, or tell me, just me, don't tell Matt. <laughs> uh, t- fuck, I guess I'll just take my headphones off. <laughs> Not the listeners either, just me. Why don't you tell us about Power Play? A power play. Well, the Enterprise answers a distress call from a planet where another Starfleet ship has crashed 200 years before. And apparently, Troy's spidey sense rolls a 20 because she detects from orbit a presence on a planet smothered by a storm that blocks ship sensors. Uh, those storms also block the transporters, so Data, Troy, and Riker take a shuttle for a rescue. It crashes, it breaks Riker's arm, and we learn immediately that Shuttlecraft do not have medical packs because he dangles his hand like he's constantly looking for a low five. Uh, O'Brien volunteers to transport down to the planet with a signal booster to improve the odds of everyone teleporting back up. And that's a stretch that they would send their best transporter guy down instead of having him man the beam to rescue everyone. Come to think of it, why couldn't they just load those boosters onto a torpedo and shoot it next to the crash site? Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, lightning hits the gang right as they're about to beam up, and three blue lights seep into Troy, O'Brien, and Data. Riker wakes up and activates the signal boost, and they all go back to the ship. Within about a half hour, everyone goes back to their stations, and the three light bearers mutiny. Data locks out the helm, Troy clobbers Picard with a Polish hammer, and O'Brien takes out Worf pretty easily. The three then hightail it off the bridge and duck into ten forward, issuing demands and taking prisoners, including Keiko and the baby, but not Guinan, who apparently is off-duty this episode. The trio shrug off phaser fire and demonstrate some mad fighting skills, so they're apparently now stronger than normal, making Worf look at least 20% less of a wuss for getting punked out by Mr. Keiko, of all people. (laughs) Picard trades himself for the wounded hostages and learns that the three, led by not Troy, are possessed by the spirits of the lost Starfleet crew from 200 years ago, and these ghosts want the Enterprise to recover their bodies and give them a proper burial on Earth. Picard is cynical, but keeps them talking while the rest of the senior staff figure out how to incapacitate the trio with minimal risk to the hostages. They fail, and the trio take Picard and Keiko and Worf to the shuttle bay to use the cargo transporter. There, they admit they are not the Starfleet crew, but are actually prisoners kept inside the planet storm on what we now learn is a penal colony, and thus does Star Trek make the Phantom Zone canon. Before the trio can beam up the rest of their prisoners, Picard threatens to blow open the shuttle bay, and the ghosts stand down, choosing their storm prison to the oblivion of space. That's pretty much it. Yep. I, whenever people say Phantom Zone, I know it's not that way in the comics, but I'm picturing uh, Data and Troy and O'Brien in that flat mirror <laughs> yes. thing from Superman 2. Free us! Free us! Except, uh, except Tro- that would make Troy uh, General Zod. With a beard. In that I'd be situation. fine with that. Because she was yes. the leader. Yeah. yeah. No, that's fine. But then that would make, like, uh, yeah, I don't know. That <laughs> now, you, you've got the zipper down to the navel here. Let's uh, let's put that back yeah. up. <laughs> uh, so you got a good thing for us, Gregory? You know, it's it's not a great episode, but it's carried by Marina Sirtis. Um, she mm-hmm. is the lead adversary, and she credibly moves away from her Troy character to convey someone else at the helm. Um, she walks like a dude. She lowers her voice. Uh, her delivery is slower. Um, she's aggressive. She's confident. She's everything that Troy isn't allowed to be. Um, and because of that, I would love her, love to see her play. You know, maybe even the Romulan Tasha character or something. Just give her, uh, give us an opportunity to see her be something than what we think they have made Troy out to be, which is pretty mild, pretty milk toast, um, ineffectual in many cases. Uh, she doesn't blow you away with her acting in this episode, but it's good enough to be distinct and to really carry the episode. 
And it suggests that she could do more than she's usually asked to do. And that's something we've pointed out a lot, that there is a good actor under there and they just keep not letting her step up. And Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. Playing an evil character can usually be sort of a mustache twirling way over the top kind of campy thing. And she doesn't play it that way at all. She's actually a little scary. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like that. Um, there's a lot I didn't like, but no, you're, you're absolutely right. There. But let's take that one thing. <laughs> What's that? We'll take that one thing though. Well, no, absolutely. There's, there's mm. some decent acting here. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a few times where uh, she's, she seems genuinely threatening, which I just, I could not imagine ever happening. No. Troy is many things. Actually, she's, she's not many things. She's Troy is one thing one and it's thing. not threatening. <laughs> no, it's, it's chocolate, Matt. That's the one <laughs> yes. thing. It's Counselor Troy has a chocolate mother. Right. (laughs) Uh, And and your bad thing? Um, Because of that underplaying, um, I would say that because they're afraid of being the twirling mustache bad guy, that uh, Cole Meany, who plays O'Brien, is so underplaying the role that he doesn't convey anything different from O'Brien and whatever prisoner is at the control. Um, Mm -hmm. So that means that when he threatens Keiko, for example, Keiko has to carry that scene Um, and she does it well. I don't think she's purposefully um, keeping the scene aloft because he's doing a bad job, but his expression doesn't even change. Um, If it were not for her, we would not know really that there was anything different with the guy. Um, not that everyone who would be on that prison planet would be insane, mad, crazy prisoner. I mean, he may have been just a litter bug on his home planet, but <laughs> goddamn jaywalkers. Yeah. yeah. We don't know how serious they were in their, uh, in their incarceration. You're and, right about that. And, and obviously data's differences are very clear because he gets to, to have yeah. a, a character and have an emotion and things beyond being Speaking data. Speaking of camping it up as a villain. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we've got the three levels of acting for villainy on this show. We've got Troy doing it and I think nailing it. And we've got data going just a little Mm -hmm. bit beyond what he has to do. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we've got O'Brien who's doing almost nothing. Um, And I, I, I want to blame the director in that case more than I want to blame the actor. Well, yeah, we definitely know he's up to the task between what we see him do in next gen, what we see him in deep space nine and all the character acting he's done. We know He's capable of more than what he does. And when we get to the end of the episode, because they wrap it up so cleanly so quickly, there's no digestion of what's happened beyond him apologizing. You know, I, I if I could have done something, I would have done something. And Keiko goes, that's fine. And then the camera zooms in on the baby and we're out. Um, yeah. yeah, that really bugged me with this episode. I, I think if the... Because, I mean, whether she knows he's possessed or not, it's he's still no, there's know, some genuinely there. creepy. Yeah, there's, there's some definite trauma there. Maybe... With all the the horrible wife stuff that she's had going on, maybe that's just how it is in their family. Maybe people just have raging outbursts of, of horribleness, and then they're just like, oh, well, that's normal. Back, yep. to, back to it. Well, we've certainly seen that before. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and she does a good job. I mean, uh, she doesn't have much oh, yeah. to do, but as you see her move through the episode, she goes from – I mean, almost immediately she is processing the situation. And yep. by the time they get to the end, when you have that standoff, she is resolved to do what she has to. Um, her baby is out of direct harm's way. So she's not so worried anymore about being able to walk away from the situation as long as the damage is uh, withheld to to them. Um, and, right. and, and that's nice. She's not screaming off in the corner, oh, help me, oh, help me, or fainting. Miles! Yeah. Well, and, and we had that a lot early on. We, we gave Beverly a lot of crap, I think justifiably so, for always being, my baby! Like, mm-hmm. every time Wesley was in trouble, that was it. She was the, the hysterical yeah. woman. And we know they could do better than that. And that actually leads me into my good thing, uh, what you said about Keiko. I think I need to make a, a, a concerted effort here to point out, I don't always hate her. <laughs> like, everyone's like, you're being unfair, you, you don't like her. No, I like her when... She does something good. Yeah. And here, like you say, she is the, the, you know, the scared, threatened woman for a minute. But then she gets this sort of stoicism to the point where when they're in the cargo bay, she's the, all three of them. It's Picard, her and Worf. And you would not expect, I mean, you know, Picard and Worf are going to be like, kill us, do what you yeah. got to do. Yeah. But she steps right up with the, with the two of them. And she's like, you know what? Yeah, me too. My baby's safe. If it's going to save my baby and the other thousand people on the ship, fuck it, kill me. And it's like, damn, okay, there's there's somebody pretty cool in there. I wish we'd see more yeah. of that. Although my question is, is who's going to take care of Molly if they send uh, Troy out the airlock? Oh, oh, that's a good point. I was about to say, although oh, just give it to Troy. <laughs> but yeah, that's a good point. 
I like to think that for some reason, and I can't think of a good reason, Ensign Rowe would be saddled with the child, just because that's the most awkward situation I can think of. Lone Wolf and Cub on Star Trek, yeah. Ooh, nice. <laughs> or or Worf, because nothing's happened to Worf yet. That'll be the next episode. Yeah. He, the, the baby can well, play with Alexander. A baby. Oh, no, a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers, Matt. The package of diapers has fallen on me. <laughs> Now, Matt, I, I believe you, you disagreed a bit with Gregory on the uh, on the uh, O'Brien issue. Yeah, I thought he was creepy. There, 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 there's segments in this where like he's going up and he's genuinely unpleasantly terrifying around around her. Like he grabs her and just sort of like is a very creepy, abusive husband, rapey vibe. See, I think I think the the situation carries that, but I'm I'm going to have to agree with with Gregory that I don't think he carried it as well as he might have. I'm glad they didn't do like, more to make him creepier. I'm not asking him to yeah. to do something truly despicable because I don't. No, we don't want him pointing a phaser at right, a baby. And, and, or something no, like and, that. and you know this episode's made 20 years ago. They weren't going to get that on your on your Happy Space Family through Space uh, a series. But um, oh yeah, Power Play. That's the one where O'Brien fights a baby. Right. But I I wish we had just. He just keeps his mouth in the same position. It's half open. He's mouth breathing through the whole thing. And I that is I wish true. his eyes had changed or his demeanor had changed. Be more of a midway between Troy and Data in terms of conveying that character. And again, I'm going to blame the director more than the actor. You would think a guy named Meanie would be able to pull yes. that off, right? <laughs> Ironically, his brother Colm Nicey is a horrible person. <laughs> but really, if it wasn't for Keiko being in that, uh, he would have nothing yeah, to do. True. That's a um, good um, okay. and and you know, to, well, this, the to the credit of all the entire episode, you know, we do get to see Troy doing what her, what she does. It's not Data as the lead as the lead bad guy, which would just been right. Picard uh, and Data having their acting off again for another hour. Yeah, the thing is, Data, Spiner, Spiner has one evil character in its lore. Yeah, and I think he was just playing lore in this, and I I don't know. It's that same vibe in uh, what was it in theory where he was dating that chick. Yeah, and he comes home and he thinks, oh well, being mean to her. You are the one her, who was wrong. Yeah, maybe the problem was with you. And he's just <laughs> he's got that same approach every time, and it's just like, okay, I get it. He's sneering. He's being mean. Eh, yeah, but like the thing is, he play he plays it, the character as lore without you know. There's like there's a certain attitude that comes from lore that's just missing. In I, this one. I didn't see it. I saw no subtle grades between lore. And well, the this. thing about lore is lore is almost. I'm not saying it, it's better. I'm like I'm. Ju I'm saying it's not as. Well, good. lore is almost okay. smiling at his own joke the entire time. Lore's on TV. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Um, He's very self-satisfied, whereas this guy was just wanting to get the job done and being a bit cruel, but not being yeah. And fight. Lore. Yeah, and and he yeah. didn't even really take any joy in that. It was uh, it was pure aggression, um, not a smiling right. thing of I get to beat up a Klingon. Well, yeah, and when you find out what his deal is when he's been in prison for hundreds of years, it kind of makes yes. sense. You know, he's he's already sort of unbalanced, one assumes, and then he's finally out and has a body and has the strongest body. Yeah. Mm. He's like, I'm going to fuck some shit up now. This the is best all right. body. I'm going to fight a Klingon. <laughs> yeah. And if he has any of the residual memories of the, the Essex crew, then to them, Klingons are horrible, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, enemies yes, anyway. Yes. You're a Klingon? What the hell's wrong with your forehead? <laughs> Where's your Fu Manchu? Yeah. Well, I, you kind of got one, I guess. But, not very yeah. good. You must not be a very good Klingon. Uh, who told you that? <laughs> so, my honor. <laughs> so we already covered my good thing. My bad thing, well, who didn't see my bad thing coming, really? <laughs> uh, Where to begin? This is really, I mean, okay, we talked about some, some good performances, and there were. D despite, I think, the episode, not because of it. This is everything I don't like about late-era next-gen and going particularly into Voyager. It's pseudo-mystical, barely-scientific mumbo-jumbo. Mm -hmm. Possession, whether there's science behind it or not, just does not make sense to me. Especially possessing Data. What the hell? Well, we've already established that Data is extremely possessible. That's true. And there's Troy a little socket well. that people can live in inside of him. He's got a little USB port for yes. souls. <laughs> yeah. There, there's no actual stakes. You know everyone's going to be fine. Uh, there's no insights into the characters. That's the thing. I'm willing to forgive an episode that's otherwise stupid if you get some good exploration of what the character's about, what's going on in their heads. Mm -hmm. Apart from a little bit of Keiko loves her baby, well, duh, you get you get none of that. You get now, admittedly, I never suspected that. Yeah. <laughs> 
But that's it. That's all you get. You get no interesting exploration of what their morals are, what their thoughts are, where they came from, where they're going. You know, it's just running in place with a stupid concept and nothing happens. And I feel like that's Brandon Braga's MO. I feel like let's do what I think is a cool idea, but not really do anything with mm. it. These guys are bad. They're taking over the guys we like <clears throat> and people are in danger and then everything's fine again. Yeah, it's a completely nothing episode. And if yeah. um, Sirtis was not doing as good a job in her role, it would be yeah, it would have been it a might be one of the five worst episodes because nothing happens. Right, and and that's the thing. Moving completely away from sci-fi and character development, and squarely into boogity boogity magic. Yeah. Just, <clears throat> but like I say, good acting can save it somewhat. But really, character development is what I want out of an episode like this. If you're not gonna. If you're not going to come up with a cool concept or an interesting idea to move the plot forward, that's that's what, character is always first for me. Then plot advancement, then cool sci-fi stuff. This one had none of that. Those are the three things that I want out of Star Trek. And and uh, and you had mentioned that the 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 danger was presented to it, but not really conveyed to us. And I agree with that because the bad guys are bad guys, and O'Brien does something a little creepy, maybe just rude. But no yeah. one dies. Um, all the injuries are shrugged off. There's no menace to the villains. Now, now, up front, we don't know they're villains. And by the time we find out they're villains, they don't get to be villainous. Well, I, I feel like it's pretty obvious that they're villains right from when they punch Picard in the back of the head. <laughs> well, we know they're desperate. And we know that they are motivated. And we know that they are um, they are outside their, what we assume would be their normal confines of morality because they're so eager to, to do this. I mean, they're trying to retrieve and the we, remains off a planet so they can have a burial back on Earth. Yeah, and if we're and expected, we know that they like the South Pole. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're, big, they're big penguin aficionados. I, I'd like to think that the, the reason for that is because we're expected to believe that they're from the Essex until it's revealed otherwise. And so right. we think maybe these guys do have morals, and like you say, they've been compromised a little bit. Sure, um, but because they're so confined, uh, the actors are, or the, or the writing is, to just do the simple mm -hmm. premise and move us along till we get to the end. I don't even think there's an actor beyond the regular cast that has a line in this. Um, so That's there's true. so little interaction. The, the people who are in 10 forward who are not Keiko or the baby or the abductors are props. Yep. Yep. And I, I, again, I don't think that really conveys menace or fear or panic or a dire situation that the senior staff and Picard have to save people or extricate them from. Here's yeah. here's what could have made this episode actually kind of cool. And I'm not just saying this because she's not my favorite character. What if they'd killed off Keiko? That Ooh. would have given you a serious sense of danger. You wouldn't be killing off a main cast member, but it would still hurt a guy that we love. I, I don't know. I don't think that they could – I don't think you could come back from that. Well, that's why I don't think they could kill the baby. That would be a, a step too no. far. Yeah. But they could have, but if, but they could they, have maimed Keiko, maybe a bad arm or maybe a limp or something afterward. I, see, I think like Deep Space Nine – barrel on her. <laughs> I think Deep Space Nine might have gone that extra mile and actually killed her and then had to live with the consequences of O'Brien having to raise – not only raise a child on his own, but realize that it was his fault. Yeah. That that is a thing that I think they could have done a few years on, but you're mm -hmm. right; they they probably wouldn't have done it here. But you know what I mean? That would have given you stakes without losing the core yeah. cast. Even something like a, a babysitter that's with Keiko in the bar. The babysitter dies. Yeah. Um, I think the problem there is whenever they introduce a character for the first time in the episode, you're just not attached to him. It's true. No. It's if, true. If maybe Unless it's Karen McDuff, of course. Well, yes, the great Karen McDuff. <laughs> no, if they if they'd for instance established the substitute bartender for when Guinan's not there. Uh -huh. And we'd seen him in a handful of episodes and they killed him. That would have been something. Like an O'Brien level character, someone who comes back occasionally that we recognize. Yeah. They could have killed Barkley. No, that's oh, different. He you. only shows up once a year. <laughs> he only shows up once a year for his episode and then he fades into the background again. Mm -hmm. But somebody we see over and over again. I, speaking of that, we got Ensign Rowe in this episode and she wasn't the focus. She yeah. was just the bridge officer that happened to be there when it happened. It, see, I like that kind of thing just because it's, it's yes. establishing her as an actual member of the crew and not just well, it's like when we see, in row. It's like when we call down to the transporter room and O'Brien's there. It's yeah. not always about him, but he, he, he works there. I was going to say there. he lives there. He probably does live there. <laughs> well, he certainly doesn't live in, live in his quarters. No, I mean before he got married even. I just I think he's one of those people like Jordy who just never – like he just lives in the transporter room. He's got no life. Mm -hmm. He just loves his job so much that he just lives right there. Yep. Um, it's there and then occasional trips to the holodeck to row a boat. Right. 
And they didn't feel the need to define no. Ensign Rowe for us, uh, either as, either yeah. as returning viewers or for new viewers, that this is Ensign Rowe's deal. Mm-hmm. She is just there. Yep. Yeah. And she's a bridge officer. And and I don't know if this was deliberate character development from last week where, like I was saying, when they all lost their memories and then got them back, I like to think she softened just a little bit and that she sort of started integrating with the crew because she went through this thing with them. But she wasn't her usual, like, rebellious, we can't do that, what about this? She's rolling along, they got a plan, she and Jordy are crawling through the Jeffries tubes, they're getting shit done, and that's... Like, she's part of the team. I like that. I like there's a little bit of development there. And she yeah. is the reason why Riker has to say out loud that this is what Picard's plan is going to be. He's willing to sacrifice himself and the senior officers to protect the ship. And yeah, Rose is the one who has there. to she digest that. Right. Which is nice. She's almost an audience identification character in that case. Because she only just got right. there. That's absolutely true. All right, Matt. What about you? Okay, well, my good thing, like I said, I like the evil, the three evil possessed guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, evil Troy as ruthless leader, who's also a dude, is really good, and I like creepy evil O'Brien. But I mean, we've sort of gone over this. I I didn't notice. Uh, going back to something Gregory pointed out, I don't know if you noticed this or not. Her carrying herself like a dude. I until you just pointed that out. Thinking back, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's a nice subtle acting. Yeah, thing. I, and again, I looked to the director for this, um, and and she mm-hmm. may have reveled in the opportunity to have a chance to to carry herself differently than how they always want Troy to be presented. Um, yeah. But even those small little details, and we saw something in the episode where where Data is sitting a certain way or standing a certain way to convey the character when he doesn't have any lines. Yeah, lounging yeah, Data. And, yeah, but and I think she, I think Spiner she's doing this that. while she's walking. Um, it, mm-hmm. it, it she is. It, she seems to be fully um, presenting the character where she does. She doesn't look like she's having to think about what she's doing. Um, it's it's right. a natural conveyance of the character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, and I I might. Well, I'm not going to go back and watch it because I'm not. But uh, no. But I I wish I had noticed that. I wish I'd seen you point that out before because that's that is very cool if she did that. And once again, you get the the idea that she, there's a good actor in there somewhere, and she's just not. She's not challenged enough. No. Yeah. She's not given enough to do. And when you really give her some a, a, a way to shine, she totally does. No, it feels like they locked into their idea of what Troy had to be, and they didn't deviate from that yeah. even as the season or the series progressed. Which is really too yeah. bad. Yeah, especially with the amount of evolution that all the other characters have gone through. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That she's still exactly where we where where uh, where we started, but with more hair. <laughs> oh, I don't know about more hair. Remember the pilot where she had that huge, like... Oh, shit, the beehive. Right. The, yeah. being, the Sorry, I was thinking of her bun. Oh, there was... The beehive was throughout season one, but in the in the pilot, she had a hairband and then this giant mound of curly hair behind that, like cheerleader hair. And it's, you don't realize how ridiculous it is until the finale when they do the flashback to the pilot and you're like, oh my god, <laughs> that's what you looked like? You got you got that seven year gap, and you're like, she's like, I know, right? <laughs> uh, and your bad thing, shuttle effect in this episode is fucking <laughs> atrociously bad. Well, let's 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 specify the interior of the shuttle. The exterior looks like it usually does. From no, from the shot of them going down, that looks like a theme park ride, and like not a good theme park, like mm-hmm. like Knott's Berry Farm. Mm-hmm. To the shot of them crawling out of a shuttle that's only slightly bigger than a baby's coffin. <laughs> On a on the the uh, stormy papier mache planet. No, and when I say exterior, I mean the model shot of of the ship. Like, oh yeah, when it's flying around in space, it yeah. looks. No, it, you're talking about you know, the, it's fine. Yeah, you're talking about the actual practical one that the the actors interact with. Yeah, that yes. is that is absolutely terrible. It's just it's really embarrassingly bad. I mean, I assume that they did this episode as a bottle show to save money, mm-hmm. but like, good lord. Yeah. Uh, Planet Hell looked like it was uh, the the old sets that they used in the original series, and I think even worse. Like I yes, I cringe to say this, but I think the planet in the apple looked better than this planet. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I hated the apple. <laughs> I think that's established. No, you're you're it's, right. It's just it's it's really terrible. On the other hand, there was something on the planet that you've liked for what 15 years now. Yes. On the other hand, um, there's a scene that I remember vividly from when I was a little kid. Um, where uh, O'Brien beams down with uh, these these transporter make better sticks. <laughs> They're like enhancer pattern enhancers. But he hooks up into a tra- into a laser triangle, mm-hmm. and that is awesome. <laughs> so I laser- don't know why it's awesome. Laser but it's triangles awesome. is the, is the key to making young Matt happy. Yes, lasers. Uh. <laughs> 
The the first thing that struck me is Picard said we've arrived at this unexplored world, and it made me realize we're five years in, five and a half years in, and they are not doing a lot of exploring of strange new worlds. Nope. And then it turns out this one had already been visited by Starfleet anyway, so this one doesn't mm-hmm. count either. How are they not doing the main thing that they say every week that they do? Well, they always get called away on a rescue <laughs> mission or a diplomatic convoy. Yeah. They're always pulled back right. from the frontier to do shuttle work. And I understand that that makes for a good story every now and then, but I'm just surprised the show doesn't do a little more, let's go to a strange planet and find a strange thing. Listen, they're seeking out strange new life and new civilization. It doesn't mean they're going to find it. There, there seem to be seeking it out in the way that they did in that last Barclay episode, which is waiting for it to come to them. Mm-hmm. And standing around going, where are you? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, so we, we need to push forward a bit here. Any further points, you guys? Um, no, I will point out that um, uh, Troy also actually uses her empath powers to do something this week. She does. She detects the, the stuff down on the planet. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is like nice. if she wasn't there, this episode would not have happened. Yeah. No. I'll, so, I mean, I don't that. know if that's a good thing or not, but. No, no, you're you're right. Like I say, she's uh, she. Well, actually, I'll say that in the next episode. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gregor, how about you? Any, um, any final thoughts? It's really hard to get me on Keiko's side when the first time we see her is when she has the crying baby in the bar. Oh yeah. Um, and you gotta you gotta wonder what that scene was before the guys showed up. Like, was she yep. just hanging out there having a drink with her baby, screaming baby? Yeah, if we had gotten something like she's trying to get out the door, she's going, okay, this isn't working, I'm about to leave, and then the three pop in. Uh-huh. It's like, oh, if she was a right. second quicker, she could have escaped all this. But, but no, mm. she's just sitting there letting the thing cry. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not cool. Come on, no. we got one We got one place on the ship. Yeah, I'm, I'm a relatively new dad, and I'm paranoid about that. Whenever we take our son somewhere, and he makes a, a, almost a peep, um, I'm practically jumping into the car. Okay, get him out of this public area. Well, exactly. Because we're not going to be those parents. And then there's Keiko being that parent. And uh, you're not winning me yeah. over here. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, so do you have a quote for us? It's really a series of quotes. Um, it's the the scene where uh, Troy is delivering um, her rationale to Picard. When Picard is um, asking her, you know, what are you trying to do? What do you need us to do? And And she's saying this. This little monologue that's broken up a little bit by um, by moments from Picard and from not Data. You will delay until a rescue attempt is possible. I know that. I also know that he will make every effort to protect the lives of his people. Since our demands are not excessive, Captain, I hope you will see that it will be simpler to exceed than to risk further injuries. What do you want? All you need to know for now is that we want to rest. Simply, finally, to rest. And I imagine in my head that they directed this a number of times because this is the anchor of the show to show that there's someone else at the helm for Troy and this is their motivation and this is the actress's moment to shine. But that to rest, simply to rest, is delivered with a salinity and almost an intensity we never see from the actress or the character. Um, so that's why right. that really stood out to me. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And yeah, I mean, even, you know, I saw Possession episode. I had already decided I didn't like it. And even then, her acting won me over. So you're you're absolutely right. All right. Pushing forward to ethics. So, uh Jordy and Worf are on their way to investigate some kind of cargo bay mystery, casually chatting and reminding us that they continue to be one of the show's most baffling and yet fascinating friendships. Right on the heels of the major bombshell that Jordy can see right through the cards at their poker games, <laughs> Worf faces his deadliest nemesis yet, a falling barrel. Who will save Pauline now? The poor bastard's spine has been crushed, rendering him permanently paralyzed below the waist, much to his shame. Meanwhile, Jordy looks on, well, looks... <laughs> in his own way, and says, oh, you're handicapped, are you? How horrible. I guess we should just kill you now, like on that stupid planet from last week. <laughs> then he storms off and doesn't come back for the rest of the episode. Worf takes this advice to heart and begins contemplating the Klingon ritual of Kervorkian, <laughs> in which an injured Klingon takes his own life uh, via stabbing with a ceremonial knife, because all Klingon rituals involve a ceremonial <laughs> knife. I get the feeling that they really got soaked by a Cutco salesperson in their distant past, and they're still trying to get rid of all those knives. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Uh, Worf has no patience for Crusher's wiggle your big toe therapy and uh, wants to kill himself. And he wants our man Bill to help him do it. And Bill is all respect life, the human equation. I thought we were buds. So he storms off to have a heart-to-heart with Captain Dad. There's a lot of storming off in this episode. <laughs> Papa Picard, thanks for that, Laura, ever the diplomat, actually suggests that Klingons may do things differently than humans, a mainstay of Federation stand-up comedy since the first treaties were signed at Kittimer, <laughs> and that maybe we shouldn't apply our own morals to another culture. Finally! When Riker is noodling this through, Worf continues being Worf and refuses to budge from his righteous Klingon righteousness. Meanwhile, somebody realizes that, oh, right, Worf has a kid, and maybe we should talk to him about what's going on. Then somebody does talk to him, and holy crap, it's the ship's counselor. <laughs> you know, the chocolate lady. <laughs> Meanwhile, again, there are a lot of meanwhiles in this episode, <laughs> Dr. Bever is dealing with some kind of death-cheating specialist from Starfleet Medical who doesn't have time for your empirical evidence and your scientific facts. She has a procedure that might save Worf's life, a procedure that has a 37% success rate in computer simulations. As a wise man once said, never tell me the odds. So we have Crusher and this renegade doctor, who's sort of a second-tier Jane Lynch, duking it out. You have Riker contemplating a knife like so much Hamlet. And you have Troy trying to explain the potential death of a parent to Alexander, forgetting, apparently, that this is old hat to him. Any hat. <laughs> All the while, Worf is tapping out SOS kill me in Morse code <laughs> with his head. Which is weird, because he's only paralyzed. His mouth works fine. Riker returns with the knife. Uh, he pulls a classic Picard move, having actually read up on the tradition, and throws it back in Worf's face. Worf really needs to figure out how to block Klingon Wikipedia on the <laughs> Enterprise. So apparently what the ritual actually says is that the firstborn son has to do the knife thing. Shit, Worf says. I might as well have that crusher ensign, uh, what's-his-name, do it. He calls Alexander down to sickbay, hands him the knife, and orders him to take it back to their quarters. But don't run with it, damn it! <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, meanwhile... Renegade Doctor decides, what the, he what the hell, it's Act 4, let me use my risky procedure. After all, the standard formula says that it'll go wrong at first, but then everything will be fine. Which, naturally, is what happens. Fortunately, Klingons have an entire backup body in case their original <laughs> one fails. Mr. Worf, you're becoming less human every day. <laughs> I loved this episode. Oh, yeah, it was yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I just, and seeing Ron Moore as the writer did not surprise me a bit, that guy. Nope. Uh, Gregory, I don't know if you're familiar with writers by name, but he just, he's basically the architect of Klingon culture as we know it through Next Gen and then into the other series. He's mm -hmm. basically taken them from what they were in the original series and gradually built on these rituals and these, you know, these little things, uh, little details about them. And every time he adds a piece to the puzzle, it's like, yeah, of course that's how they would be. Yeah, of course. That's what makes sense. Yeah. And he's, he's been really great at that. And apparently he single-handedly just invented them. Which is which is nice. great. Yep. Yeah. Um, so my good thing, well, like I say, there are so many good things to choose from. I love this episode. I will agree that some of the situations are a bit contrived to get us where we need to be, but it's a character piece. It shows us how Worf reacts to this really intense situation, and consequently how the people around him react to that. And that's what I said in the last episode. I'm forgive. I'm I'm willing to forgive sloppy plotting and stupid concepts if we get insights into the character, and we do. Uh, but this isn't my good thing. I'm giving, myself I'm giving myself two slices of pie because I'm the dad. <laughs> My good thing is Troy. Just like the last episode where I promised, you know, I'd point out something good about Keiko if she did something good. Uh, again, with Troy. Uh, we've beaten up on her so badly, especially as the other characters find their legs and become familiar and likable. And she's always lagged behind, but she really shines here. She does her job and she does it well. I want more of this Troy. I actually found myself wishing she'd been in it more. That... Makes for a good episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you're making me, hey, how come Troy's not in it more? What? What, what did I just say? <laughs> this doesn't sound right at all. What podcast is this? <laughs> yeah. It's the Mirror Universe. This isn't the Marina Sirtis <laughs> Love Hour. Apparently anymore. it is. But that's the thing. We get accused by our listeners of just picking, you know, choosing characters to pick on just for the sake of, uh, you know, it's funny to hate a character. We've said all along, we want to like Troy. Yeah. They've just given us no reason to. Yeah. The show gets in the and, way. And, yeah, exactly. And and as you said before, Gregory, the, the writer's idea of what she should be gets in the way. But they gave her a counseling situation. She had the very uncomfortable role of having to go to Alexander and say, uh, hey, hey, kid, you're about to lose another parent. Yeah. Again? Yeah. 
<laughs> Nothing up my sleeve. <laughs> that <laughs> trick never works. <laughs> Nothing up your dad's sleeve either because he's a corpse. Yeah. Um, but no, she nailed it. And uh, honestly, so did Brian Bonsell, the, the kid who plays Alexander. There was mm-hmm. a lot of really heavy emotional stuff here. And they could have, with with a lesser child actor, which is, let's be honest, most <laughs> of them. Yep. They really could have uh, could have screwed this up, but they didn't at all. Yeah, I think he does a great job. Um, I think he is, is subtle um, in in what his mm-hmm. character needs to do, and I think he he doesn't do anything to distract from the moment of the scene. Um, no. We don't look at this and think, well, there's the kid actor shining through. It's that's Alexander. He's in this moment, and this is what he's feeling. You can't ask much more for a kid that age. Yeah, Absolutely. That kid is like six or something, and he's doing an amazing job. Well, the kid himself, I think, is like 10 or something. But Is he really? Because he's tiny. He was. Uh, we talked about this before. He could before. fit in a thimble. <laughs> he could fit in that shuttlecraft. Ooh. Yeah. Well, just yeah. barely, but yeah. Um, I mean, you'd have to pull his legs in, but still. Right. He'd have to not be wearing his overalls because they're just a little too puffy. Um, now, he played the, as I was mentioning before, the cousin Oliver in Family yes. Ties. The last couple of seasons, they brought in the cute kid. And he was probably four or five then. Mm-hmm. And I think Family Ties went off the air in the late 80s. So he would have been close to 10, I think, at this point. I'm guessing. I don't have that in front of me. but Right. We don't have access to the memory alpha of Family Ties. Right. I mean, there must be a Family Ties wiki out there somewhere. <laughs> right. And it's called Memory Alpha of Family Ties. <laughs> I assume it's called Shananapedia. Mm-hmm. Um. But no, he's he's great, and uh, like you say, I I think the tendency for most child actors would just be to way overplay that, flail his arms around. Wow, my dad's dead, yeah. but my father. Yeah, no, he plays it really well, and uh, I think Gregory, you pointed this out in the episode when his body language when he when he's with mm-hmm. Worf is so different. It's yeah. so like, and you see this in real life with people with overbearing fathers, where you just stiffen up and you start calling him sir yeah he is trying to make his dad proud even when he is upset yeah. and there's a moment even when alexander is very happy about a decision that his father has made and he still won't break mm-hmm. um right. he, nope. he acknowledges it he says yes sir he's given a task to do he goes off to do it happily uh, but he doesn't skip along the way he does turn around and he says i'm glad you made this decision but when he smiles, it's not this beaming, you know, punky Brewster smile where he cocks his head to the sides and there's a little twinkle in his eye. Right. Um, it's a, it's a simple acknowledgement. He curtails it, and it, and that kid actor conveys all of that really well. It's a nice job. And between that and then the scenes he has with Troy, where he's way more relaxed, and he's like, "Ah, this is that Klingon stuff, isn't it?" Like he only respects that stuff in front of his dad. His real thought is much like his mother. Ugh, this stuff is such bullshit. Why does he believe that? And for a kid actor to to turn like yeah. that, to to know the subtlety of I I'm this way around this person and this way around this person, that, yeah. that's a lot for a eight, ten year old, whatever he is, to to be able to do. Oh, totally. <laughs> I don't know that we all the actors in the cast, like the grown up actors, know how to do that. And I yeah. wonder when the writers are putting the episode together, when they look at the actors and they are figuring out what the actor is going to be doing in that show or that episode, if they think, mm-hmm. I don't know if the actor can do this, what I'm trying to write. I hope they can. We'll see if it works. Um, they apparently were comfortable enough asking this kid to do it, and he came through. Mm-hmm. I would I would like to think I have no evidence of this off the top of my head. Maybe I read it or heard it somewhere. But I would like to think that Dorn kind of took him under his wing and helped him a little. You know what I mean? Like I feel like because those two have such a good father son relationship on scene if he, or on screen, it feels like there must have been an off screen. You know, like them Come hanging on, out son, a little. Let's go out for frosty chocolate milkshakes. <laughs> well, something like that. I mean, yeah. you, you feel like they must have hung out a little bit. They must have at least talked about their characters. Oh no, I totally yeah, buy yeah. that. Yeah. And Dorn seems so good-natured in in real life that I could just totally buy that. Oh, yeah. Of course, that could just be a contrast of the way he usually plays Worf. If you ever see him smile, it's like, whoa, that guy's great. And actually, Dorn has this move when when Worf lets his guard down. Because there is a a sweet guy in there somewhere. And when he realizes he's not going to kill himself and when his kid is so happy, he just gives him that little smile. And I just, I love that little wharf smile. Something about that is just... We will do it together, Alexander. Yeah. yeah. It's really sweet. It will be difficult, 
Yeah. Well, what uh, what hasn't been about this relationship? <laughs> and you know, if you see that on stage, that moment would also be the actor acknowledging to his fellow actor that they got through this entire production that night really well. Um, and <laughs> and and I like that that comes at the very end. We had a big show to do. You brought it. Good job. Yeah. No, that's that's true. Um, and it's great to see the relationship between these two evolving. Like Alexander showed up what last year. Yep. And he was terrified. Worf didn't know what the fuck he was doing. Mm-hmm. And we're already to a point where there's there's sent him to go live with his grandparents. Yeah. And then his grandparents said, Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Dude. And they even acknowledged that in the episode where he's like, Well, like you could send Alexander up to his grandparents. No, they don't <laughs> want him. But, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. My mom, look, my mom said not again, and I got to do what that lady says. I'm scared <laughs> of her. Um, so my, my ba- father was crushed under a giant pile of technical manuals. <laughs> well, he was trying to read them all. <laughs> um, okay, so my bad thing. This was probably also my bad thing way back in Operation Annihilate, um, back in the original series. <sighs> Worst backup nervous system. Yep. Yeah. I know they established it at the beginning of the episode, but it's a cop-out, just like Spock's inner eyelid was a cop-out way back then. Yeah. It's just like, oh, no, we got the danger, we got the dramatic moment of him dying, and then we still got to have everything back to normal. Mm -hmm. That's a bit of a, like, dramatically, you can't have it both ways. Now, they do do a decent job, like, I'm not going to say for a second that it's not still a cop-out, because Mm -hmm. it is, but they do set it up right from the beginning. They do. And Klingons have backup everything's. And I like the idea that a human looking at a Klingon's anatomy is like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> spines everywhere. What the fuck is going on in here? And you get an idea of why they're so tough, because evolution must have been really cruel to them. Yep. Like, they got a brain in their ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the backup brain. Where, where would you put it? Good point. But you, you get the feeling, and I, I'm projecting here, but you get the feeling the conditions were so harsh on their homeworld. Mm-hmm. That what eventually made it through through natural selection was just this brutal, spiky thing with backup systems and, you know. Yeah. Like there's... I like the idea that that uh, Klingons were not even close to the dominant species on their planet during their evolution. Yeah, they had to fight their way up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, speaking of evolution, I don't know if either of you guys caught this, but in that scene when they're looking at it, mm-hmm. uh, uh, fake doctor, what's her name? I don't remember her name. Yeah, no one remembered no. her name. Uh, fake, fake Jane Lynch. Mm-hmm. was saying, this isn't a very good design. And I'm saying, do you do you not know how science works, honey? <laughs> there's no design. I get the feeling that, no, no, she does not. Like, do we really still have, like, uh, okay, maybe there's still creationists in the future. I don't know. But should they be doctors? Mm. Should they be tampering with DNA if they think God made it? That might not be, <laughs> you know, might not be the best. Well, approach. there's also that little I mean, human ego going on you know we're going out to the universe and the joke before that everyone has to become more human and we're human we're yeah. the perfect template and look at everybody else they're just a mess it's like the inside of a shark well, in here. look at this this is well, that's a good point it's like wicker chairs and license plates it's like what a shark would eat for this body <laughs> great now i want to see an episode where o'brien gets stuck in the belly of war because <laughs> <laughs> of course it would be o'brien that'd be uh, a great ds9 episode no it wouldn't uh, they did a Fantastic Voyage episode, though. Oh, yeah, they did. Or I forgot about at that. At least they did a shrinking episode. Because that's a weird, yeah, weird is. thing for Star Trek to do. Uh, I don't know. On your list of sci-fi cliches. You got me there. There's they, always a shrinking episode. Yeah, they did an awful lot of them, and I think they just, okay, it's it's this thing's turn. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, Gregor, how about you? Good thing? Um, I would say that for our episode, they do tackle a lot, and I think they do a good job tackling all of that. And when people have oh, to yeah. take the position that wouldn't necessarily be the audience's stance, they're not presented as the cold bad guy. Um, everyone is rational and, and reasoned in their stances, even if we don't agree with mm-hmm. them. Um, initially, Riker has to be calmed down by Picard because Riker doesn't want to uh, help Worf kill himself. And Picard has to explain, we have to respect this. This is what the guy thinks. This is where he's coming from. Uh, we handle right. this differently. When the doctors are arguing about uh, research protocols and and um, the ethics of dealing with a patient who's going through something so traumatic, um, we understand where they're coming from. Uh, no one has an agenda that's driving them beyond the situation that we are presented with. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. no there's no sort of straw bad guy that makes, you know, oh, well, obviously he's right. wrong. 
Yeah. Everybody's coming. And and Matt, I think you mentioned this is what next gen does best when they're when they're really firing on all cylinders. You have a lot of different viewpoints and nobody's necessarily wrong. Yeah. And you have to figure a way through it by pissing off as few people in that chain as possible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I really like. And um yeah, as you say, like Riker in particular, he's angry, but you're right, he's still coming from a position of this guy's my friend. I don't believe this. I can't do this. Yeah. Right. And and, it's, and, it's really and nice. he calls out Worf in a, in a fantastic moment that comes along in the episode uh, where he oh, essentially yeah. says Worf is taking an, a, a stance that's expected of him or he's playing the noble hero um, instead mm -hmm. of dealing with the situation because he has responsibilities beyond himself. And that's a, a very understandable position for, for us, even though. Worf only got injured maybe 30 minutes ago. Riker's practically mm -hmm. yelling at him and saying, you've got to get better. You've got to get over this. But they've explained yeah. Worf's position enough. They've explained Riker's position enough where even where they're having to move things along pretty quickly because of the constraints of the hour episode, we know why they're doing what they're doing at that moment. Yep. Um, he, and, and I think both of them. I'm sorry. Oh, um, no, I, I think that'd be the end of my point. Uh, they, they do a good job with so much in such a small amount of time. Absolutely. And and as we all pointed out, there is so much going on here. And um, I, I think only one element of it was was maybe a little uh, a little weak, but we'll get to that in a minute with Matt. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think both of you had questioned why Worf chose yes. Riker instead yeah. of Picard. And I don't know if you guys agree with this. I don't know if it's even the real explanation. But my take on that is he's, he respects Picard as a leader, as as like the diplomat the the guy who stepped up to help the the high council like he looks up to him it's a dad thing yeah riker is a brother he's said directly to him you are a fellow warrior i respect you as an equal and i think that's a big deal to him i don't think yeah. he sees a lot of people exactly like that no i i thought about it a lot after you after you were saying that and it's actually a pretty good point and and again that might not be what they meant it might have just been a matter of we haven't done a good riker episode let's make it him well, yeah, but I'd like. To I mean, think, I always assume that's the direction the the writing goes from in this show. I'd like to think they thought it out a little more. And though. we and Riker just going. Oh, go ahead. I I just I think Riker's the right guy mm -hmm. because he isn't quite as emotionally mature about this as Picard is. Picard, while it was tough for him, he said, "Look, this is this is them. This is who they are." And yeah. as a diplomat, it made the most sense for him to take. It, that. Well, and it makes perfect sense. He knows more about Klingons than anyone else on the ship, including Worf. Although, well, <laughs> yeah. Alexander knows more about Klingons than Worf. Well, he has to because if he doesn't, Worf will yell at him. Yeah. Oh, he'll he'll probably whack him in the back of the head. But yeah. and we yeah. also made the joke that because <laughs> you because dummy. Picard knows so much about the Klingon culture and respects it so much that had Worf asked Picard up front to do this, the episode would have been ten minutes long. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but I also feel like uh, Riker knows his way around a bit. He did serve on a Klingon ship for He's a eaten while. God. And he has eaten. I think that gets you into the Klingon club right there. Uh, that's yeah. That's Which the hazing of, of the Klingon fraternity, right? Yeah, Klingons don't actually eat this shit. <laughs> no, this is just uh, this is what we put pledges through. Yeah, here, eat this bucket you, of worms. Oh, you're now good. Commander Flounder. <laughs> I wonder if Data did that while he was on that Klingon ship just <laughs> just to have done it. <laughs> like, okay, now I have that cred. I don't care. I don't eat stuff, but <laughs> now I'm one of them. Well, as we learned about androids, they do enjoy tasting things. Well, that's true. No, they don't enjoy. They just can't. They, they, they do taste things. Right. I, I think it would have weighed the episode down way too much, and I don't actually want them to have done this. But I'm kind of curious how, uh, say, Data and Jordy would have weighed in on the debate. Yeah. Just as, a, just as a fan, just as somebody who's interested in all the characters' take on things. But there's already a lot going on, and that would have been too much. Yeah, and the, I, I don't think we wanted to see the episode or, or the moment where Riker is telling Troy what he's thinking, and Troy is already being um, bookended with Alexander and with Worf. That would have made it very Troy heavy. No, and this was this was a, there was a lot of juggling going on here, and I think it was done very well mm -hmm. for all the like you have pairings of characters facing off or interacting in like four on like four different levels, and none of it feels like a mess. And that's not easy to pull off. Yeah, and, and there's um, no there's no moment where someone blows up and throws a beaker against the wall and it breaks. You know, there's no dramatic tension peak that's a different gear from everything else. Everything is is yeah. working in conjunction with each other very well. Well, actually, let's skip 
to uh, do this a little out of order, let's skip to Matt's bad thing because I feel like we've given him a couple of opportunities now to counter with uh, with the point that okay. he wanted to make. I, Beverly has this amazingly blasé attitude towards Worf's paralysis. Like, I I know she doesn't think he's going to die, but he still lost like lost the use of his legs, and that is a really really big deal for him. But she seems she just seems way more interested in hanging out with this new super experimental lady doctor. Uh, and speaking of who, whenever said new lady doctor shows up, this episode grinds to a complete halt. Hulk, 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 <laughs> to, to complete halt. Like I have no interest whatsoever in her ma- in her maverick medical procedures. Like there's it. Like there's this tiny, tiny little subplot with her where she's like, yeah, she's she doesn't care about about patients. She's all about testing her theories and stuff. And she's going to use some experimental theory on Worf, so we can run around. And she kills some dude in uh, that they beamed up off the planet just because she wanted to get some information out of him. Well, that's not what happened. <laughs> she didn't kill him, and she didn't. You you make it sound like she was interrogating him. Oh no, no. I I think uh, the, as to the Beverly thing, I think that's just general like detachment that a, that a, that a doctor has to have. But I think mm. your your other point about the the Beverly and and doctor scenes are definitely the weakest of the juggling act we were talking yeah. about. Yeah. Well, I think, like I said, there's a lot going. There's a lot going on here, and I'm fascinated by all of it. So, except whenever this two. new chick shows up to be all like, "Oh, I have this experimental way of saving Worf," I just I don't care. Well, and and Amanda has actually pointed out when we watched this episode together a few years ago, mm-hmm. I, I, this really stuck with me. She said this should have been Pulaski. Yes, yeah, and that would have added a whole extra element of of uh, rivalry, of tension, of of conflict. Mm-hmm. Because Beverly would be like, "Hey, you're the you're the person who stole my job," and Pulaski would be like, "You're the one who stole your job back." Yeah, I was doing really well here. I had a pretty sweet gig, and and Pulaski actually did some. Like, I had that in mind when she was on this time, and she actually mm-hmm. they actually laid a little groundwork with her doing experimental stuff that Beverly would never have done. No, and it would have added a nice. But again, that might have been too much. And there's a closeness with her and Worf that was yes. being set up for that entire season. That would have added a whole extra dimension to it as well. Yeah. And we also would have gotten the simple answer of where did she go? Why did we never mention it? Yeah. She just Whatever happened to you anyway? Oh, I fell off the ship. I'm I'm <laughs> hanging out with Chuck Cunningham now. It's fine. Yeah. I got transferred to the hood. Yeah. Oh, not the hood. <laughs> How did that happen? Um so we been... How did you piss Kirk off? <laughs> well, go on, say it. She's old enough. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, well, in my, in this case, she actually was on that show. That's so. true. Twice. Yeah. As two different roles. Both times you thought she roles. was hot. Yeah. Uh, so let's skip back. Uh, Gregor, your bad thing? Um, I think the thing that annoys me the most is that when we have the moment where Worf has died on the operating table, spoilers, he doesn't, um, when they bring in Alexander to see his dad's body because he's asked for this and Troy says, okay, we can do that. Um he cries, and when he cries, Worf revives. Now, they don't connect that dot or those two dots so directly that we think the the tears of a child have defeated death and the universe <laughs> has responded because it's good by nature. But they're having it both ways. They've got the redundant uh, systems within Worf that helps him come back, but it happens just at the time where his child is crying at his side. And that strikes me with such anger. I mean, there's the Hulk that was mentioned earlier. I hate <laughs> that in a story. Um, and it, it, it reminds me of all the kids movies that came out where that is the answer to a corner that the writers have painted themselves into. We had the moment where there's death and then how do we solve death? A child cries. Death is yes. The tears of a child are better than any cure. and death runs yeah. screaming because it's allergic to, to child's tears. Um, right. It's their way of having it both ways. And I don't like it. And there are other quibbles I have about the episode. That would be my strongest one because it seems like they snuck it in for the people who want to have their sentiment uh, amidst all of this uh, cerebral debate. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it felt unnecessary. I certainly want Alexander to feel the death of his father. I want him to emote and the actor did a good job. Um, mm-hmm. But having it at that moment and that being the moment that Worf revives just put a bad taste in my mouth. I think that is a line that Ron Moore will walk way better in Deep Space Nine because in that show, there's a running thing where you have the prophets who are these either wormhole aliens or gods, depending on how you want to look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and he he paints in the much better subtle gray area of, well, if you want to believe in mystical forces, that's fine. But there's also a scientific explanation here. You're right. It is a little clumsy. Mm hmm. 
But, uh, um, you know, for a complaint for a show, that's pretty middling. Um, that's yeah. mostly what I'm bringing to the episode more than what it's doing um, in, 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 uh, to a fault against itself. Mm-hmm. Pretty good episode. Yeah, I mean, yeah. one one plot point is, you know, I mean, you got to you got to pick a bad thing. That's the format of the show. Sure. But also, if it really bugged you, that's that's worth discussing. But, yeah, overall, just as a character piece, it's a series of two handers. It's a series of two characters talking to each other. And every scene, like Matt said, the, the doctor scenes were a little weak. But otherwise, every scene, Riker and Picard, Troy and Alexander, Worf and Riker, they're just powerful and really good, carried off by the acting. I mean, you know, top marks. Yep. If, if there was all if, one thing that I thought initially was a complaint, but I think actually works to to develop the characters, is that when we hear the odds are 37%, that's one in three. Mm-hmm. Considering the frontier setting that they're in, that's pretty good. Um we have seen where they have taken bigger risks with even worse odds to save the entire ship with something yeah. that mm-hmm. Jordy pulls out of his ass at the last second, or Riker says, we've got no other choice. We've got to do this. And for the, the dignity or the integrity of Worf, if you want to argue to go one in three as a chance of a complete recovery, mm-hmm. that's reasonable to me, but I understand yeah. that Crusher works in a sterile environment where everything is controlled you know, because right. she works mostly in the lab, not off on the planet saving people. So she's got readings and instruments and, and things at her disposal that maintain order in her sick bay or her operating theater. Um, it's a different way of approaching her responsibilities than what Jordi or Riker have to do. Um, again, I thought that was a failing of the show. I see it now as a way of delineating the characters even more. Well, and I think that echoes like a basic thing that happens in science all the time. You got the people who want to take chances and you got the people who are more by the book. I mean, I don't, I don't know the scientific community. It's not like I read academic papers or anything, but my understanding is, and they, I mostly know it from Star Trek. (laughs) There's a, there's a lot more again in deep space. Nine. I hate to keep bringing it back to that, but that's, you know, my shining example. That's, Mm -hmm. that's where this writer particularly shined. You get the young doctor out on the frontier and his whole thing is let's try something new. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing weighing us down. I'm right out of med school. We're out here where no one can help us. Let's try something risky. And then you got a doctor like Crusher who's like, no, everything's got to be by the book. No one's and risking go, anything. Right. And it's What if this hurts my child somehow? <laughs> my baby. All right, Matt, skipping back to your good thing. Oh, yeah. So everyone in this episode is just acting their asses off. Yeah. Like, Frakes is doing an especially great job at oh, being yeah. outraged at Worf's decision to die. Picard, this conversation over whether or not Worf has the right to kill himself great scene just everyone is doing an amazing job there's there's a scene when Worf's operation is happening and this is the like this is potentially the part where it could completely fall apart mm-hmm. when he's in the operating room and all the other characters have to be pacing around waiting to see that's usually where this kind of story falls apart for me yep and they handle it really well there's a scene in the ready room where Picard and Riker are just going over everyday mundane crap okay we changed the duty roster okay we're upgrading the sensors whatever you could tell their minds are elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And then they put down the pads and really good directing choice. They they cut to these really nice close-ups. Mm. Like you got a wide shot when they're talking about crap they don't care about and then close-ups when they're talking about the stuff that they're really thinking. And it's, you know, it's film school 101, but it's still very effective, I think. Yeah. And, the, and, and they like, don't override it. When you cut to Picard for that right. first close-up, he doesn't say anything. And then you no. cut to Riker and he initially doesn't say anything, but then he says, is there any word? And then Picard answers no. Yeah. But they ask you to take in this shot that's a, a, mm-hmm. a change of the camera angle with Picard right in your face and deal with that for a second before they do and a you conversation. Know exactly, you know exactly what they're saying, even though there's like five syllables to that conversation. You know the subtext. You know these two actors are powerful enough to carry that in their simple delivery, in their face, everything. Mm-hmm. They're just – they're so good yeah. at that. There's – I mean acting – there was no weak acting in this at all. The guest star no, was kind no. of bland, but you know. But even even Beverly, I've said this before. I think Gates McFadden is the weakest actor in this uh, in this ensemble. Mm-hmm. But even she, she had a couple of speeches. She had a couple of you know nice ethical stance, indignant moments, and she stepped up to those too. Yeah, no, I like I said, I didn't like her at the beginning of the episode when she's feeling very like mm-hmm. very uncaring about Warp. But when she gets angry later in the episode, she is amazing. And she has a scene with Patrick Stewart. This is the test of all the actors on this yep. show. When you put them in a room with Picard, if they can hold their own and he's not showing how weak they are, mm-hmm. then they're stepping up and they're showing, yeah, 
I'm a good actor. I, you know, I, I made eye contact with Patrick Stewart. And, mm-hmm. and I did not look away. And she yep. has the closest that any actor has to that moment where you do have the beaker being thrown against the wall. So you have some breakage to show the yeah. emotional turmoil they're at. And she, the actor and the character pulls back from that and turns to Picard because that's not going to work with Picard. You've got right. to be reasonable, Reason not with him. purely yep. logical, but you've got to be cerebral in your argument. You can't win him over with hysterics. And that actor knows that the character knows that. And that scene works because she does that. I don't think that the character did know that two years ago though, or maybe the actor, no. I don't know, but I think she's come along. I also like that uh, Picard doesn't overstep his bounds. Like he comes down to say, Beverly, you should probably try this experimental thing. And she's like, no, I don't want to. And he doesn't say, well, I order you to. Yeah. He's like, you know what? You are the chief medical officer. I defer to you. Do what you like. But you, you, sh- you should probably do the procedure. Well, I think it's important for him to weigh in mm-hmm. as, you know, as the most important person on the ship. But as we've seen throughout the original series and even here, when it comes to medical things, when it comes to the fitness of the crew, the mental soundness of the crew and this kind of thing, she trumps the captain. She is absolutely in charge of that. Yeah. And it was nice to see, you know. And then there's that bit at the end. Mm-hmm. Where she's giving her speech to I love that scene. And and she's got she does it pretty well. And mm-hmm. the the other doctor is shrugging it off. She doesn't say anything. No. She barely makes eye contact. She, well, she's kind of rolling her eyes. She's got her hands in her pockets. She just doesn't care. You know what? Fuck you. He lived. I don't care what I you won. have to say, lady. And she leaves and she looks back for a minute and I was thinking, okay, this scene's going to be ruined if she's going to give a speech back. Mm-hmm. And then she she gives it another thought and then she just walks out. And that yeah. is Exactly how to play that. Uh, exactly the way to avoid the cliche, and they did a really good job with that. And the tone that Crusher has in that is not well, – she's sitting behind her desk, so it could be very much like the the desk sergeant yelling at the police officer who saved the day with his yeah. unorthodox ways. Um, I don't agree you know, with Giving the them results. back their badge and their gun. Instead of right. sitting there – um, you know, stamping the cigar out into the ashtray going, damn it, I can't believe he did this. She <laughs> takes the tone of disappointment uh, like yeah, she's you, you, like she's parenting, um, yep. but not to the point where she's patronizing. And so she she has that almost detached air where she's enveloped in her disappointment as a doctor, as a colleague. And yeah, it's, as a, a fellow it's doctor, a nice tone I'm to take, an effective tone to take. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, any final thoughts, you guys? How cool is it that the gadget that's crucial to this episode that 20 years ago was wild sci-fi is something that exists right now? We can we have medical 3D printers. Um, mm-hmm. They print out a copy of his spine to let Worf walk again. We don't have it to that degree, but we can grow things on 3D printers using base DNA material, base genetic material. So there's less of a chance of rejection by the body. We're there. Yep. The the blueprint is there, and as we move forward, there's probably another, I don't know, 10 or 20 years till we could do just that. Yeah. yeah. Whereas this was highly experimental in this 24th century setting. Yeah. That's, that's pretty great. It's amazing. I, I am also in my recording closet only holding one pad and not 10. So we, <laughs> we're better in that regard as well. Uh, Matt, how about you? Uh, I'm just going over my notes. I think we hit everything. Okay. It's a great episode. Yeah, this is, I don't think, one of my favorites, but way the hell up there. Probably mm. one of my favorites for season five, I would say. So my quote is, uh, Riker, this, this to me, when we talk about the acting, is the, the linchpin, the cornerstone of what makes this so great. They gave Frakes a full-on Patrick Stewart, indignant Picard speech. This is master level. This is like, you've graduated to the top level class. If you can do this, you are an actor, capital A. And he fucking nails it. Mm-hmm. And no no pun intended. <laughs> I, was just I, I used to think, think about that, Ricard, uh, that Riker's best moment was in the um, Measure of a Man when he's arguing against Data being sentient and Pinocchio's strings are cut. I, I think this might be his best moment now. Well, and in season two, that was – a part of that was they were breaking away from the cheesiness and that was the first big serious moment. Yes. But he was, he was definitely good in that. Yeah. But this mm. – is just a total monologue. He's talking to one guy. He's sort of pacing around. And this is a little longer quote than I typically like, but you have to hear this. This is just so great. Yeah. Yeah. It is not easy for me, but each of us must die in our own time. And my Remember time- Sandoval? Hit with a disruptor blast two years ago. She lived for about a week. Fang Lee, Marla Astor, Tasha Yar. How many men and women, how many friends have we watched die? I've lost count. Every one of them, every single one, 
fought for life until the very end. I do not welcome death, Commander. Are you sure? Because I get the sense you're feeling pretty noble about this whole thing. Look at me. Aren't I courageous? Aren't I an honorable Klingon? Let me remind you of something. A Klingon does not put his desires above those of his family or his friends. How many people on this ship consider you a friend? How many owe you their lives? Have you ever thought about how you've affected the people around you? How we might feel about your dying? And uh, Matt was mentioning a second ago that he lists off a lot of the different... There's a lot of nice continuity there. He lists off people that have fallen in duty. And they say, you know, you lost this person, you lost this person. Marla Astor, who is the mother of the kid you sort of adopted and never mentioned again. Oh, yeah. Whatever happened to that kid? Oh, yeah. I don't know. But it's it's nice. There's a little bit of continuity there. And then, of course, building up to Tasha Yar. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the, the person who had your job before you. This this happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. It was nice. And one of my notes here is I bet Kirk couldn't have even listed off all the security guys he lost. <laughs> and this uh, is Red guy one. Th- Red guy two. Yeah. Um, this is the uh, first officer. Scotty's nephew. <laughs> Had to bring him directly to the bridge so I could look at him. Yeah, but that, still. Was, that was a little awkward. Listen, <laughs> I'm about to lose my best friend. That's much worse. <laughs> uh, so that's about it. Uh, Gregory, this was great. You need to come back. This was yeah. this was a lot of fun. I would love to. This was a great one-two punch of episodes. Um, yeah, uh, it was. I was delighted to be a part of this. This was really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to reach us, the email address is postatomichorror at gmail. Very easy to remember. Yep. Uh, when season five is over, we will do a supplemental show. We will answer all your mail. Uh, or if you want to speak to us instead, call the voicemail, 206-973-3982. The show is at postatomichorror.com. Again, all this stuff is super easy to remember. Yeah. It's just plug postatomichorror into whatever. <laughs> Type it into iTunes. There it is. I don't know. Plug it into facebook it's probably not there but you know <laughs> try facebooking in maybe friendster i don't know uh, <laughs> all right and with that we will not say safe journeys that's the other show no we will say see you folks screw you see matt you i took your no i'm just saying it not you <laughs> oh fuck you <laughs> the post-atomic horror podcast is a co-production of ron algar watt and matt Ramotham. Copyright 2012. Please don't sue us. We're just doing this for fun.